0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation. All 66 books. The Big Book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Hosea is called by God to prophesy during Israel's last hours, just as Jeremiah would be called in years later to prophesy to the crumbling kingdom of Judah. Remember, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. In your, in your alphabet, I comes before J. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. This is the divided kingdom. This wasn't what God intended. So these prophets are going to, in, in no small part, are going to speak to Judah, Israel or to Judah. Hosea's personal tragedy becomes an intense illustration of Israel's national tragedy. I've written that down on the top of my uh, page in my Bible from, from Boa and Wilkinson. That's a great one-line uh, thought to keep in mind as you look at this book. It is a story of one-sided, uh, of, one-sided of love and faithfulness between a prophet and his faithful, faithless wife, Hosea and Gomer, and Jehovah and his faithless people. Just as Gomer is married to Hosea, Israel is betrothed to God. In both cases, the bride plays the harlot and runs after other lovers. But unconditional love keeps seeking when it is spurned. In Hosea's case, that means buying back his wife from the slave market. For Israel, it means purifying punishment followed by restoration of the land of promise. Um, so that's Boa and Wilkinson's synopsis of it. I, again, I, I refer to this almost every week. I love what they do in a couple of paragraphs uh, better than many other resources I refer to. Let's look at some general high-level observations about the book. Number one, Hosea, uh, simply the, the name means salvation, which is an interesting title for this first minor prophet. So it means, uh, by, by the way, who needs salvation? Sinners! You know, there's an acknowledgment there. I, I need help. I need salvation. Hosea's ministry spans about 45 years. He is considered a minor prophet. We have 12 books that are minor prophets. And remember, this isn't minor because they're less important. It's minor because they're shorter Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, Ezekiel—of course—are uh, major prophets because of the volume. Uh, don't be um, uh, surprised, however, some minor prophets are just as complicated and di- deep and rich theologically because there are a few pages versus a book like Isaiah or Jeremiah that is, you know, many, many pages of content. Um, Hosea is a contemporary of Amos, Isaiah, and Micah. I don't know if that helps you. I love that kind of information. I I love knowing these guys knew each other. Now we don't know to what degree or depth, we're not privy to that, but they lived at the same time and there's no reason, uh, it's a very safe conclusion that they knew each other as contemporaries. Um, Israel, the the, the message that Hosea and many of these minor prophets give is, is pretty consistent, that they have violated their covenant with Yahweh. And because of that, they're experiencing judgment and problems in their lives. God's warning and promises are clear, unchanged, and still in place. And this is one that, from a biblical theological lens, I think is important. Uh, Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 30 should be familiar chapters to you. Because when God set up the blessing and cursing motif and the promise, ultimately, of the land and eschatology and the kingdom of God, that was formed, formulated so clearly in those two chapters. So 28 Deuteronomy is, you know, if you do this, I'll bless you. If you don't, I'll bring the curses of Egypt on you back and forth. Blessing and cursing motif. If, then, if, then, if, then. Deuteronomy 30 is, in the end of time, I'm going to give you all that I promised you. Even though you're going to go back and forth as a people group. Again, I don't know what you're learning from the big book series. One of the things I'm continually being impressed with is I may not live to see these things actualized. And I don't think most of us in the Western mindset live with it should work out in some. I mean, I should get a diagnosis and a treatment and be better. I'm here to tell you, you may never get better in this line. Ultimately, there is restoration. Ultimately, there's salvation. Ultimately, there's the kingdom of God with Christ. But these people in this book did not see these promises. They live through the judgment, through the loss, through the devastation of things. And Deuteronomy 20 and 30, all the way back that far in our Bibles, uh, laid the groundwork, and that has not changed. It's clear. It's still in place for the Israelites. Israel commits adultery with Baal, the fertility god. If you remember the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah. So uh, it's a bit of an unknown. I think there were 850 prophets that were killed that day. Some hold to 450, it doesn't really matter. But these groups, it's important for us to understand. And uh, when you go to Israel, if you have not been, uh, you will go to Mount Carmel. And when you're on Mount Carmel, it is a beautiful spot. The the Carmelite Catholic uh, heritage goes back there and they've got this statue of Elijah with a sword uh, in his hand, and he's overlooking the valley, uh, the Jezreel Valley, the Kedron Valley, so you're overlooking this vast. It is one of the most fertile parts of Israel. The Canaanite gods looked at this, not to be too graphic, but um, let's just say it this way. Baal's issue, which came from him, fertilized the land. The Ashtaroth, Asherah, was his consort, not really a wife, his, his, his lover. And so in the Canaanite system, if you had basically sexual orgies, you were worshiping the Canaanite gods of the Ashtaroth and Baal, and you were fertilizing the land in your activity. Think about the perversion of this. That's a pretty seductive thing if you're a Jew on the fringe that doesn't know what you're supposed to believe and you are seduced by these cultures that free sex and immorality and orgies is all part of worship. Nothing's really changed much, has it? Still part of the fabric of humanity. So these Canaanite orgies were a worship festival. That's the backdrop of this land and that's the backdrop of the story of Ezekiel. So Baal is going to fertilize this land and make it prosperous. No, God blesses the land for prosperity. Hosea vividly describes Israel's immorality as spiritual adultery, and Gomer is the personification of that. Make sense? So here's one-on-one with Hosea and his wife Gomer who's playing the harlot versus Israel who's playing the harlot. That's the point. Why would God use a story like this? We're a lot more moved by a man whose wife goes out and plays the harlot again and again, and God tells us to go retrieve her. Then we're moved by a, a nation. I mean, na- national news, yeah, that's, that's sad and important. You know, Kobe Bryant's death makes the nation mourn. A national skirmish, well, oh, some people, you know, if the, if the helicopter had no one important on it, we'd have heard about it in a byline, that'd be it, right? We're moved by the connection. So the idea was God moving his people to say, look, this is a real person. Hosea, a prophet, his real wife, Gomer, and she's doing these things. And so it draws us in going, that's horrible. Well, the nation Israel does the same thing. Hard for us in our Western mind to think also about idolatry and adultery. But these are very, very closely related in our Bible. Because when you worship an idol, when you turn away from God and you worship the gods of Molech and Baal and Asheroth, you are committing adultery with your God. And so the language is heightened, but spiritual idolatry is just like physical adultery. That's the point that we're trying to learn. Uh, Major themes of Hosea. Disobedience, of course, brings judgment. Unfortunately, they're going to learn it a very hard way, and we could put it into... Three phrases, judgment is sure, destruction is sure, and salvation will come. Again, they're not going to see the salvation in their lifetime, but this is the 30,000-foot take on what's happening in the book of Hosea. The prophetic ministry ends in a time of military strength and prosperity. So Israel and Judah are pretty successful, and that's always your most vulnerable time. When you've just achieved a lot, when things are going well, that's when you're most vulnerable to temptation. And of course, it's seductive and pulls them in. Um, The Assyrians are going to end up deporting Israel. And we've already looked at the end of Jeremiah, how the temple complex has been destroyed. The city is pretty much in disrepair. And that's the backdrop of what's happened. There are five judgment cycles or parallels in the book of Hosea. And this really is for your BSF precept. Uh, community Bible study, you know, super nerd folks. But if you lay these out in a Bible study side by side, you will love this comparison and contrast. Because what goes on in the book of Hosea, we can't look at in 30 minutes. But these parallel passages, once you look at them, you go, oh, I, I why didn't I see that? And frankly, unless you have some help in some of these things, you're not going to find it on your own unless you're incredibly studious and disciplined, but I'll leave that up for just a few minutes for those of you who want to copy it down. Um, It's rather easy, Derek Kidner writes, to have a naive naive idea about God. Something like a child's impression of the adult world and worrying about the conundrum of his way of doing things. The conundrum is this, old one. God is all-powerful, all-good. Why does he not rid the world of evil? We hear that even today. If, why doesn't God stop AIDS? Why doesn't he stop war? Why doesn't he stop sex trafficking, right? We worry about these things. One of the things, Kinder continues, Hosea does for us is give us with extraordinary frankness the other side of that anomaly, God's side. A child's idea of his elders is a puzzled one. They make the rules. There's power for you. They have the money, whatever they may say. What could we do as children with all that freedom, all that power, if we had it? The old joke, you never give your uh, two-year-old the keys to your car, nor your teenager your checkbook. Uh, They hold the power. It's unfair as a child, Kidner's observing. In this book, we'll see things not as simplistic as this. But situations of people are uncomplicated and power is like a magic wand. Hosea introduces to a family which is a miniature of our world, or rather the most enlightened part of the world. But the problem is a family, and God compares his situation not to an autocrat uh, who orders nobody dares to question, nor of a father who rejoices in an adoring wife, but to a husband whose wife has left him and a father whose children are like strangers. Where does omnipotence, where are the instances of solutions for such a picture? Certainly, tame acceptance is no answer. But no more are strong-arm tactics. You can't just let a person live in sin and not do anything about it, but you can't strong-arm them. Any of you who've had a wayward child, if you've had a teen that's gotten into drugs and alcohol and living immorally, you can't lecture them into submission. You can't strong-arm them back to the fold. And that's what God's dealing with with Israel. And again, we're getting this little story, the pericope of Hosea and his wife, Gomer. Um, On and on he goes. Uh, Let me jump ahead a little bit. The last thing a responsible prophet would expect, go and marry a prostitute. Because if we paraphrase it this way, Kidner writes, this is exactly what I, the Lord, have done when I pledged to marry you. So all these things that Kidner lands with, the last part of this long section, um, in every direction the people have played him false. That's the British language. They've played him false. And then he gives three points. In religion, with other gods, another cult, in politics, with shabby intrigues and dubious patrons, in morals with unbridled sex and violence. When you look at those three statements, is anything different then than now? We, we play him false when it comes to religion. We, we make up our own religion. I mean, my word, the stuff that I read, I hope you don't ever have to read. But, I've been reading stuff this week about progressive Christianity. I I had no idea this was all going on. I've been asleep at the wheel. And one of the observations they make is, and this has been one of my broken records, experience is not as important as the authority of Scripture. Progressive Christianity puts a lot more stock in experience. A lot more stock in feeling. A lot more stock in how you view things, not what the Bible says. The idea of the Bible being authoritative and the word of God has fallen way out of favor. Nothing's changed. It's another God. It's another cult. And when it comes to politics, with shabby intrigues and dubious... I love the way Kidner writes. We've got all these... Little, I mean, goodness, I don't care what your opinion on the impeachment and the trials are, but do those words fit shabby intrigues and dubious patrons? And then finally, in morals, with unbridled sex and violence. The Christian community has failed categorically, not in saying don't have sex before you're married, but in explaining why sexual intimacy was designed by the God of the universe between a heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong relationship. Anything else is running away from the truth. Anything else is making God in your own image. Anything else is... capitulating to the culture's view of how they define their identity, their gender. I was talking to some physician friends of mine not long ago. I said, with all this discussion about um, gender dysphoria, confusion, identity, I think I'm a boy, I think I'm a girl. I said, if you stop treatment, you're X or Y. End of discussion. The moment you pull away medication, surgical options, you're X or Y can't say that out in the public. You'll be vilified, destroyed, decimated, lose your program, lose your movies, lose your recording license. You'll lose everything. And Christians don't need to be angry about this. You don't need to, you know, get on a soapbox and yell and scream at people and hate them. That's never the objective of Scripture. But you and I gotta have a baseline. God is good. He designed something perfectly and beautifully even though we're fallen people in a fallen context. And by following him, you are going to be better off in every measurable and immeasurable way than listening to the culture, the last point being unbridled sex and violence. And that's really, it's, it, the point of this, nothing's new. Nothing is new. We're, we're not even that much more sophisticated in our sin. We're just as arrogant, and you know, the term hubris, uh, to me hubris is a lovely word that takes pride to the next level. I'm not only proud about it, I'm out about it. I'm shameless about it. I can do whatever I want. You've just made yourself into God. I, I, I. And that's the danger, and that's the frog in the kettle that we all live in. I'll jump to some lessons, and we'll fold in some passage from Hosea. But number one, it's again, many of these are obvious. And the question I'm asking as I prepare these cover to cover studies what do we need to know? I like time, date, location. That's important. But what do we need to know if if we're new to this, if we're unfamiliar with this? And that's the question I ask myself as I write these. I don't know if it's helping you or not, but uh, it's helping me think a little differently than the way I normally read and study Scripture. Uh, Number one, never minimize the Word of God. Um, The phrase, if you survey the Old Testament prophets in a number of iterations, the word of the Lord came, the word of the Lord told me, God told me. It's almost a, you know, it's sort of a redundant phrase that we miss because it's so frequent. And as I read through Hosea a number of times, I thought, you know, this is one of these, okay, Michael, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. I said last week, quoting Howard Hendricks, he has spoken, he did not stutter. We need, to, we need to turn up the heat on our boiler. Uh, God's Word is where it begins. But apart from the Word of God, we can't know. We don't know. Now we may hear that Word, or we might read that Word, but when He spoke into existence, the Word of God, when He spoke and created, the Lord said, the Lord spoke, so the Word comes back. This is the very Word of God. The characterization of this as something less, And and even, for example, progressive Christianity. Well, we're not going to talk about sin, we're not going to talk about consequence, we're going to be judgmental. God's love, which is exactly what happened to Rob Bell. Rob Bell moved from a guy that started a church teaching the book of Leviticus, for goodness sakes, to a guy that never mentioned the word sin, never talked about the gospel of Christ, and then basically said it's just about love and became a universalist and who knows where he is now in his thinking. This is nothing new. I'm going to argue it's as simple and as hard as saying, what does God say? Are some things in the Bible hard contextually? Yes. Are some of them difficult to figure out how they apply? Yes, times 10. But the bulk of the book? No, it's very clear. And we don't make theological rule on an exception where we don't know what it means or understand it in that context. Beware, you will never ever, ever, ever err on the side of trusting God's Word. You will never err trusting God at His Word. Does that mean it's going to be easy? Not necessarily. Does that mean life's going to work out perfectly? I'll tell you no a thousand times on that one. Um, The Holy Spirit is better than a guilty conscience. And when you trust God at His Word, you can sleep tonight without a guilty conscience. What price is a guilt-free conscience worth? As opposed to trying to play a tape and convince yourself your choices are okay, when there's that little inkling that says, you know, I know this is wrong, but all these people say it's right, ergo, I'm going to keep doing it. And yeah, it can become callous. Some of you are runners and athletes, and you get calluses on your feet and hands, and... um, you, you, know, you can take a pen and stick it in quite a way before you ever feel it when you have you know, good, good runner's feet or dancer's feet, whatever you want to uh, use for an analogy. Sin's the same way. When you sin long enough, you become desensitized to the consequence of that. and it can, it ta- But there's still those times when it twi- it, there's a twinge. There's still those times, uh, when, I don't like the reference, but the dark night of the soul, where there's still those times when it's like, I know this is wrong. And if you embrace that, it just may well be the Holy Spirit in His kind and dogged way saying, you got to let go of that sin. you got to let go of that nonsense you're listening to and believing. Don't let the world teach you theology. It's a constant battle. And that's why church in small groups, and Bible studies, and discipleship groups, and other Christian peer are so, so important. Cindy and I spent for years and years mentoring young couples in this two-year program we used to do. And, and the bottom line was, uh, we want to teach you how to study the Bible and teach you how to think theologically, and you need to find other couples that are going in the same direction. That's it. That's it. Not that you're exclusively around other couples that are going in the same direction, but you need God's Word, you need to think about it critically, you need to do it with other people going in the same direction. That's all it takes to stay home, theologically and biblically. That's all that's required. And you know what? Cindy's and my closest friends in life are men and women who are going in the same direction. Some are older, some are younger, some have different experiences, medicine, teachers, homemakers, entrepreneurs, doesn't matter what they do for their day job, they're men and women trying to live out their faith where they are in a faithless culture. And I don't want to be unkind, but in a faithless church in many cases, You need good people around you who will love you and walk with you. And you know, if, if you don't need that in your family, if you've got it all worked out, God bless you. I need it, man. We needed it with small children with middle schoolers, with teenagers, with marriage, with money, with jobs, with transfers, with moving, with changes in life, with health problems, with surgical, all the stuff. We needed people around us who were a little bit ahead of us, who knew a little more than we did. And you know what happened? 2 Corinthians 1 verses 3 to 7. I probably sign that on more cards to people that are hurting or have had loss than any other passage in the Bible where Paul talks about, if we suffer, it's for your benefit. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort. It's a beautiful passage. And you know what I spend a lot of my time doing? Talking to people in chronic pain. Talking to people who are hurt. Talking to people that can't get an accurate diagnosis, much much less a treatment to help them. Which is why if I ask you, if I see you with a a brace or whatever, and I say, how you doing? I'm I'm genuinely concerned. I know what it's like. I've been down that road many times. And I have empathy. Not because I'm a nice person. I'm really not very nice, ask Cindy. I've been there. And if you've been through infertility for years, and there's a young infertile woman, you have a, you know, God uses that. And you can minister to them. It goes back to the word of the Lord. Secondly, never minimize the significance of marriage. Again, it's, it's so obvious how marriage is taught in Scripture, but don't miss the book of Hosea as about harlotry. It's about adultery. It's about Gomer playing the harlot, Gomer leaving the embrace of her husband Hosea and throwing herself in the arms of other men. Um, it's striking if you think big picture, The Bible begins with a marriage and ends with a marriage. It's striking if you realize that marriage is designed for many things. Husband and wife both have strengths and weaknesses. If you're smart, you learn early in marriage, she does things better than me, I do things better than her. If we put that together, we got a really cool relationship. Now, if you try to do what your wife is better at, your husband better at, you're going to have a joyful conflict in your marriage. Whenever we fight in marriage, Cindy and I fight about two things. We always have and always will. Raising children in directions. (laughs) We get in a car, we'll have an argument. I guarantee you, if we're going somewhere that we haven't been before, or she thinks she knows, because after all, she's a realtor, she knows everywhere, right? And so this is how we get there. And I I pull it up on the GPS, and I don't always agree. Do you always agree with the GPS? How many of you are brave enough to say, I don't always agree with the GPS? Godly people. Godly people. <laughs> sometimes the technology's not up to date. I mean, in my neighborhood, for a while it wasn't even on the map. We're just driving in a field, you know. It's like, what's this going on here? Uh so you can't, it's not perfect, right? And sometimes you know better than the GPS. My uh son-in-law and daughter are here today, and they go to their house a certain way. And and he's convinced that's better. I'm convinced it's worse. <laughs> and if they're in the car, we go their way, so I'm not in conflict, you know. If I'm going, I go another way, you know. Uh, so we argue about dumb things. Um, marriage are two centers that are stuck together. And the moment you wake up and realize, I don't have to agree with each other on every stinking thing, but I've got strengths, she's got strengths. And if we play on those together, we're going to have a really great relationship. And coming up on 40 years here in short change, uh, I can just bless God for his kindness, not because I'm that smart of a husband or that great of a husband. But it's striking to me that Scripture is full of theology, of story, uh, Abigail and Nabal, uh, you know, to Ephesians 5 about the importance of marriage, uh, 1 Peter, all these stories about marriage and family, but it began with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. Don't miss this! Don't miss this! Now, I know some of you have been divorced, remarried, some of you are going through it. I'm not trying to rub salt in anybody's wound, I'm just making the observation, marriage is really important to God. Um, I also find it striking, and I want to write this in pencil as I say it. We don't keep covenants in the world. We're not asked to keep our salvation. That's kind of striking if you think about it. You walk an aisle, pray a prayer, you say some words, you believe, you profess, you get baptized, whatever part of that salvation process for you, uh, I hope you have a benchmark where you know the day you trusted in Christ and Christ alone. That He lived, He died, He was buried. Three days later, He came back from the grave, and any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation are promised the eternal security with Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and we begin this crazy rite called sanctification and growing in Christ, and it goes up and down all over the world, and we all sin, we all get on and off track, we all fail a million times. That's the story. Why doesn't he ask us to keep our salvation? We can't. Why does he ask us to keep the covenant of marriage? And this is what I'm writing in pencil. I don't want to be bulldogmatic about this, but why is that the covenant? That we make before God and man, and we vow, vow, and we exchange rings, and we sign a piece of paper, I'm going to do that. And then, of course, we argue about parenting and directions, and those arguments can get escalated, and then get escalated about jobs, and money, and sex, and all the other stuff we deal with as families, and they can become so difficult that we get parallel tracks in life, and we end up getting divorced, Again, I'm not not trying to hurt anyone's feelings, I am trying to recalibrate all of us to understand your marriage is more important than you understand. Hebrews chapter 13, 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And this again is the story of Hosea. He's talking about Gomer. But the big picture is the people have played spiritual adultery with other nations and they've walked away from their commitment. So Hosea juxtaposes God's marriage with Israel to Hosea's marriage to Gomer. Um, divorce and marriage are complicated, they're hurtful, and beyond the discussion of the innocent party, uh, every divorced person, Cindy and I know, and have some of our close friends have been through this, Uh, you have what I call the living death. I was uh, in seminary, had a buddy in college. We went to seminary together. He was in ministry. They got divorced. They had uh, children from their marriage. She ended up getting remarried not long afterwards, and they had children, and he remained single for many years. And uh, he was angry. He was bitter. We loved both of them. We knew them pretty well, and we saw what was happening, but it was too late. We intervened. We did all that you could do, but they were going to get divorced. So um, you calibrate your relationships, you love them both, you try to be kind, you try to speak truth, but when people close the door and go and live a different way, well, he, was, he hung around and he will acknowledge today, 20 plus years later, all the mistakes he made. The, the one thing Cindy and I have, and this is just um, experiential um, anecdotal information, this isn't data. Couples that have been divorced or remarried, the ones who do the best seem to be those who acknowledge their culpability And quit hating their ex. Acknowledge their culpability, I was part of this, and quit hating the ex. I'll never forget watching him go through anger and and hate, and the divorce proceedings never go kindly. They're just a mess, and so forth and so on. And I remember him calling me one time, we were talking, it was probably four or five years later, and he made the comment. I'll just call his, his wife's name, Amy. He said, um, you know, Michael, I realize I'm going to deal with Amy the rest of my life because she's the mother of our children. And for, for sporting events, for high school graduations, for college, for marriages, I'm going to have to be involved with Amy the rest of my life. I can't hate her for what she did to me. And I thought, wow, that's, that's wisdom and they have a collegial relationship. And that doesn't always work, because sometimes you, you can't control someone else's uh, experience, right? But, and I just share that story to say, I'm not, I'm not, you know, not going to hate somebody because they go through a divorce or remarriage. I, I'm saddened by it. And I just bring this up in the book of Hosea, because that's the metaphor God chose to use. You married this guy named Hosea, and you're living in spiritual. And by the way, this What's great about this is he loves, he pursues, he forgives. He loves, he pursues, he forgives. And that's what Hosea does. He loves, he pursues, he forgives. And that doesn't matter whether you've been through divorce or marriage or just something hard happened to you. Do you love? Can you forgive? And those obviously are processes. Third, forgiveness may not remove natural consequences. And this may seem like a real duh lesson, but I don't believe we think deeply on this. Um, Just because I'm forgiven doesn't mean life's going to work out okay. Um, The names of the children are a great study in and of themselves as well. And if you've read Hosea, you know that I won't take time to do it now. I don't have time, but I want to read Hosea 4. Verses six through nine, with this idea that forgiveness may not remove the natural consequences. We're forgiven, but there can still be consequences. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of God, I will also forget your children. The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They will feed, they feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward their iniquity. And it will be like people like priests. You've probably heard that before. This is where it comes from. So I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. Not a cheery, this is a cheery Michael Easley phrase, right? Um, lack of knowledge. They reject the knowledge. This is what God, Deuteronomy 20, 30, not changed. Israel knew this backwards and forwards. When your kids come home rebellious and angry and mad at you, and they give you this information they shouldn't have shared with you, you want to give them a lecture of how they're wrong. That's a natural, knee jerk, parental process. Let me tell you how you're wrong. When have you given your child a lecture? And at the end of the lecture, they said, Dad, thank you for straightening me out. I never knew that before. Oh, father of mine, you're so wise. I had all these resources, and I neglected them all my life. I'm such a fool. Dad, will you forgive me? Here's the keys to the car, son. How much money would you like? That's how it would work, right? It doesn't work that way. We think a lecture is going to rectify everything. It doesn't because we don't have the knowledge, and then we reject the knowledge. That's the human condition. Um, Of course, they're going to see in the book of Hosea, rains are going to be withheld, the crops are going to die, animals are going to die, he's going to take priests out of their role, they're going to be judged for it because they have rejected knowledge. Fourth, never minimize the need and opportunity for repentance and seeking after God. Never minimize the need for an opportunity for repentance and seeking after God. Hosea entreated Israel to repent, to turn back to the Lord again and again and again. And again, so applicable in our current mindset and and economy of language. Um, You and I need to have a a very uh, quick repentance process. No such thing as a little white lie. You know, just admit it. The, the, the marvelous thing is, I don't know why we're so resistant to acknowledging our sin when he says, if you acknowledge it, I'll forgive you. First John nine is your get-out-of-jail-free card. If you confess your sin, if you, which is I agree with God, I acknowledge I was wrong, I got angry, I was self-righteous, I said words I should not have spoken, I've thought thoughts I should not dwell upon, God, will you forgive me? Will you help me? Do you ever ask for help? Will you help me, God? I keep doing this stupid thing. Will you help me? Repentance should come off our lips quickly. I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. Marriage is another great lab for this because when you hurt your husband, you hurt your wife, just because you say it, it takes some time. Our emotions are very messy. And it takes some time when your husband or wife injures you or does something wrong for you to forgive them and all that process. But the wonderful thing is he's patient. Hosea 6.1, come, let us return to the Lord. The word return in both of your English and uh, Old Testament, Greek, Hebrew and Greek New Testament, the word return often is the, the word uh, repent. It, it means doing a 180. <laughs> for he has torn us But he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. Watch this. He will raise us up on the third. Hmm, I wonder what that's talking about. That we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. I love that progression. Know and keep pressing on to knowing Him. I began with the comments of Philip Carey. It's not about a religion. It's about knowing the personal work of Jesus Christ. Know and keep on knowing. You know, you could could not waste your life studying the Gospels and the words and works of Jesus. If that's all you ever did in your Bible reading, it would not be a wasted life. To look full in the face of who this Jesus is and what He's done on your behalf and mine. that we may live before him, verse 3, so let us know, let us press on to know the Lord, his going forth is as certain as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. And then finally, a fifth lesson, remember, don't forget. Remember, don't forget God over and over the scripture don't forget remember don't forget remember don't forget remember don't forget remember why because we forget i've taken uh, four years of hebrew in grad school and worked on it the rest of my life i still work at it i've just started taking a new course on hebrew and it's it's a, it's a super basic course and this guy is terrible as a teacher he's just terrible as a so I'm for, I paid for the dumb things, so I got to take the class, right? So I, I, I'm, I'm doing okay. Like, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't you know. And what, what's striking to me is, although I know a lot of ways saying, I forgot a lot of ways saying. And he, he is enthusiastic, which I like. He's very excited about teaching Hebrew, which that's weird to begin with. Um, <laughs> but the delightful part of it is, it gets me more excited when I open my Hebrew text because I can read it. It's not you know, easy, but I can read it. And there's a joy in that. And I'm not saying you need to learn Hebrew. Please don't hear that. What I'm saying is don't forget. And the way you don't forget is you be reminded You have to learn it again and again and again. I suspect when these men and women play an instrument, they have to practice. And when they don't, those of us who aren't musicians may not know it, but musicians and they know it. I'm rusty, I haven't worked on this in a while, and it's evident to them and to people that know. The same is true of your spiritual life. The way to not forget is to remember. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. Would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour and music composed by Chad Cates.